Hello, Clear Choices listeners. Rob Eigner here. Wanted to do a little preamble for today's episode. I have a very unique guest. His name is Christian Branscombe. Christian's a convicted murderer. He was convicted when he was 19 years old and released five months ago at the age of 44. And I had the opportunity to meet with him face to face. And he really changed my perspective on things. Uh, He's a very intelligent, as you'll see soon, very intelligent, articulate, and self-educated person. Never tries to excuse away or apologize even for what he did. He knows that there's no amount of sacrifice he can make to compensate for what he did, but he has dedicated his life to redemption. And he's someone that, you know, you may have seen before. He's been on many shows and and podcasts and whatnot. Most notably, he was on the Redemption Project with Van Jones, which is on CNN. And um, he's just an incredibly compelling guy. Uh, He had a lot of humility and he brought a lot of insight to his situation and other people who are like him. And it really opened me up. And I, I hope it opens you up as well to have a different perspective on people like him and your own life as well. So enjoy the show. Welcome to the Clear Choices Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Eigner, and it is my unique privilege to bring you intriguing conversations with people who have made the bold choices necessary to elevate their lives and create a positive impact on the world. By hearing their stories, I hope you walk away more motivated and more inspired to do the same in your life. Because we all have choices to make. My goal is to help inspire you to make more conscious and powerful choices, clear choices. Now let's get started. Hello and welcome to our latest episode of Clear Choices. I am honored to be sitting here today with Christian Branscombe. Christian has just been released from prison five months ago. He's a convicted murderer. At the age of 19, he had already experienced sexual abuse, significant shame and isolation. Some challenging parenting and family members led to some of the choices he made that led him down this path. However, he is someone who has truly found redemption. He has recently been released from prison and Obviously, the choices that got him in trouble, as well as the choices that got him released, are going to be our focus today. So, Christian, welcome to the show. Yeah, pleasure to be here. So, I know that was a big mouthful for my audience to hear. Tell us what it was like growing up and what led you down a path from a young boy to, at 19, committing a murder. Well, growing up, my mother uh, wasn't really prepared to be a mother when she had me. So growing up, I was neglected pretty severely. And for the first two, two and a half years of my life, uh, I was left to be isolated. You know, she didn't want to be a bad mother or for me to like other people. So she would keep me isolated from other people. And then she would pretty much just lock me in a room and let me cry it out or, you know, go on with life. So I didn't really attune to people the same way that other people attuned to people in the sense that that bonding never took place. So when I smiled, I didn't see somebody else smiling. When I cried, nobody came to my aid. When uh, there, there was no real connection with me from a very, very young age to other people. 
And so that sense of isolation or disconnection from other people wasn't enough to damage me irrevocably, but it definitely put me in a position to where I didn't relate to other people the same way that other people did. And in that isolation growing up, at around eight years old, I ended up getting molested by this 17-year-old boy in the neighborhood. He groomed me and another girl that I had a crush on as a kid, and he started molesting us. And to, to a kid that is isolated and doesn't have a connection to other people and is not really acknowledged in his home as an individual, uh, this was like a, a breath of life. You know, I didn't understand what sex was at eight years old, but I knew what attention was. And receiving that was what meant everything to me. Now I was special. I was, uh, you know, I was relevant. You know, he allowed me to to have toys and, you know, play with things. You know, like he wanted to see me, you know. And and as a kid, it just, uh, it, it really was like being a part of a secret society. And it was just this amazing experience to be a part of it. You know, you thought, you know, finally I, I found somebody that, that likes me. Did you have awareness of what was wrong about it? You know, all I knew is that we couldn't talk about it. And that's why it was like a secret society. But it felt so good to receive the attention. I couldn't imagine that it was bad. It was like, you know, the way the context he put it in is like, I'm telling you about adult things that the adults don't want you to know about. So it's a secret and I'm trusting you. So you can't talk about it. You know, I was like, okay. So it wasn't like we were doing something bad. It was that we were doing something that the adults didn't want to share with us as kids. So he was like elevating us to adults in that way. And how long did this go on? Uh, it wasn't a, a real long period of time. I would say, man, it might have been, I honestly can't remember the duration of the time. It was a few months, I would say, you know, maybe three to four months, you know, but it was the first time that I experienced acceptance. And, and did you talk to adults about it at any point? Did you ever go to your mom or anyone and say, this happened to me? No, it, it came to light after he, he tried to sodomize me at some point and it was too painful for me. And uh, I started to cry. So he, he attacked me, slapped me around, and then he pushed me out the window and he told me, hey, I never want to see you again. And if you tell anybody, I'll kill you. And for me, this was a significant moment because I'd never received physical violence before that. And I'd never been terrorized. I'd never been told that my life was in jeopardy. So it was a pretty shocking moment to go from pure acceptance to terror, you know, in an objection in, in a matter of seconds, you know, and then for him to tell the girl that I was getting molested with the only other connection that I had that, you know, I was persona non grata, you know, that I wasn't supposed to be talked to or accepted in. And she cut me loose too, you know, so I went from complete acceptance to being part of a, a, a small society to nothing and being the outcast. And so the way that it came to light was that in my isolation with that, I thought, well, maybe this is what my parents want. Maybe this is what they really want from me is, is to be touched like that. And so I went into their bed like I would when I was scared at night or something like that. And I, I tried to touch them. And the next day they asked me like, where did I learn that? And why was I doing that? Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I told them I was scared and I, and I was, I was terrified. I didn't want to say anything about this because I thought that this guy would kill me. And uh, they told me I'd be protected. They said the cops would protect me and they everything would be okay. And so I trusted them and I, I told them what had happened and, you know, the officer showed up and he ended up going to juvenile hall for a couple months. Well, when he came back out, well, the cops weren't there. My parents weren't there because I was growing up in a home where I was neglected. 
And, uh, you know, he assaulted me every time he saw me in the neighborhood and he would embarrass me in front of his friends and he would degrade me. And, and he would also tell me that he's going to come into my house in the middle of the night and kill me, mm-hmm. you know, that he was going to cut my throat, you know? So, um, and he was still underage. He was still, he was 17. Right. So he was just about 18. So it was, it was, uh, very terrifying to, to go through that. And, and what I really drew from that at the end of that experience is that the cops weren't going to be there for you, that your parents ain't going to be there for you. Don't trust them when they say to trust them. And that I was deeply ashamed of myself because in my mother's eyes, she was a very religious person and she condemned him for this homosexual act. And for me, I had been complicit in this act. I had chosen to be a part of this, not knowing what it was, but in her mind, this was something that was sending him to hell. So when I would tell her like, well, you know, I, I did this of my own free will. I chose to do this. She would say, no, no, he manipulated, you know, she would justify it in this way. But what it really did is made me deeply ashamed of myself for participating. And I knew that if she really understood the context of those things, or if she, she would, or she did know it and couldn't accept me the way that, that things had happened. Mm-hmm. And um, at eight years old, you don't understand sex. You don't understand it in that context. You just understand that you're getting retention or not. But from her perspective, this homosexual act, this thing that had happened that was against God's will, and that He was condemned for that, you know, I felt equally condemned by it. So now you're now you're getting shame in multiple ways. You're rejected from the attention you were getting. And now you're rejected by your own mother, essentially, for partaking in this. And the isolation of that in my chest saying, if you really knew me, you wouldn't accept me. And also isolating myself in the sense that I couldn't trust other people to protect me. So coming from an instinctual feeling of that from birth in the sense that I was intended to as a child. And then later on, this happening where now I'm being assaulted and terrorized and knowing that if I was to bring it up, well, it's just going to get worse because then the cops are going to come, put him away, and then he's going to come back even more angry and he's going to kill him. So really the, the, the way that I kept isolating myself and feeling as though people wouldn't accept or really understand me anymore was, was a very powerful thing in my life. <laughs> Hello, listeners. I wanted to announce a very interesting and unique contest that we're going to be doing. As many of you know, I'm a coach and consultant and have worked with hundreds of business professionals, uh, helping coach them for both business success and success in life in general. And we want to put it out there to all of our listeners that anyone who shares the show, promotes the show on social media five or more times will be entered into a drawing for a free coaching session with me. So we would love to see uh, evidence of your shares uh, that can be found on the show notes of today's episode, how to do that. And anyone who shares our show more than five times will be entered into a drawing for a free coaching session with yours truly, Rob Iger. Thanks so much. And so let's flash forward a little bit. So as you you know move through that as best you could at that age and with what little support it sounds like you had how do how were your teen years and as you kind of moved through high school and all that how who were you who did you become what i became was somebody that sacrificed everything that they really wanted in life to feel safe 
You know, I sacrificed relationships. I sacrificed any progress at school. I sacrificed any type of well-being for this notion of safety. And I started carrying around weapons. I started. At what age did you start carrying a weapon? I mean, immediately after this guy started assaulting me, you know, I started watching all of these TV shows and idolizing Dirty Harry and Bronson and these people that were vigilantes. And, and eventually I ended up really associating with like Friday the 13th and Halloween because they'd been harmed by other people and, and they were seeking revenge. You know, they wanted to, to take revenge for the harm that had been done to them in their lives. So these people became my heroes and the people I emulated. Uh, so that's really interesting to me. One of the things that comes up for me is maybe, you know, there's, there's so many things happening in the world today with gun violence and mass shootings at high schools and all this stuff. So can you give any insight to us and the listeners of like, what are some things to be looking out for? Because when I hear you talking about yourself, I'm like, did no one notice this? Well, they definitely saw the signs of it, but they didn't pinpoint the shame. So they would put you in special education. Well, this made you feel even, even worse. Even more shame. They would put you on medication. They would say, oh, you need to be put on Ritalin. They would, they would continue to label you, but they never got to the point where they actually looked at what the real problem was, which is that I was deeply ashamed of myself. I was deeply disconnected because of that shame. And uh, that was a, a serious trauma. Like, so let's just say I've got, you know, parents of children listening to this show and maybe a friend of their kids or their own kid, you know, they're seeing some kind of science. How do they drill down? Like how would someone have drilled down with you as a 16 year old pissed off dude, idolizing, you know, violent movie stars, essentially, uh, how would they have drilled down and, and got to that shame in a way that would have helped you? Well, that's, that's, a, that's a good question. And, and I think that it really boils down to you can't heal a shame cycle or an addiction cycle or a trauma cycle, which is all the same thing, without that person owning their shame or having the courage to own their shame in a group setting and then basically finding acceptance. Mm -hmm. And it's like a leap of faith. And it's probably the hardest thing you will ever get somebody to do because people put their lives in jeopardy. They put other people's lives in jeopardy not to feel that feeling of shame. They would rather die. Would you have been open to it then if you had the opportunity to express your shame and then hopefully be accepted by who you're expressing it to? Would you have been open to that process then? I know you are now. I, I think any human being given a real opportunity to lighten that load will take it. But for somebody in that state of weakness or that feeling of overwhelming cataclysmic failure, you know, that they, they have to know that they are going to be accepted. You know, it's like somebody coming out of the closet or somebody that has done something that has a great legal consequence or, you know, like for somebody to go like, man, you know, like there are consequences for that shame or you wouldn't feel ashamed. And so then let's go back now to that young boy, young man. Uh, you then surrounded yourself with other people who were probably covering up or compensating for something as well. And, and then the way you were accepted by, hey, we're into motorcycles or, hey, we're into guns or, hey, we're into. I think that, you know, birds of a feather flock together. And, you know, when you have people that are traumatized through family abuse, sexual misconduct. I mean, 90% of guys in prison, I would probably say even more, have been sexually abused. Or 90%? Every group that I've ran where we really, like at least with murderers, you know, when I brought up my 
trauma or things that have gone on there, they also have similar trauma. Dominant theme. It is a dominant theme. And so now let's flash forward a little bit more. Are you failing out of school at this point? I'm definitely not doing well at school. You know, they've they put me in special education. Uh, I've never read a book at this point. I've never really felt connected that I had the potential to succeed in education. And did you do anything that would be considered productive? Meaning, you know, do you play sports? Were you part of any groups? Anything that would be kind of like normal adolescent, you know, getting ready for life kind of experience? Uh, I took martial arts for, I think, a little over two years. You know, I, I really got invested in that. And once again, that was kind of like that attachment to that that, that quality of protection or that I could, uh, and I did really good in that until I ran into drugs. And when I started using drugs, then it started becoming something that I was using on the street. I would get into fights. I would do things. And the teacher that I had was, uh, you know. That's not what he wanted to use for. Well, she, she, it was she, and she was like, you know, that's not acceptable to use this in any way like that. And to me, the connection with that drug community was more powerful than my connection to the martial arts. So what, how old were you when you started using drugs in any kind of significant way? Uh, I'd say I was around 14 or 15. It was around that age. And what did it start with and what did it go to? Well, it started with like raiding the alcohol cabinet with, you know, friends and just kind of like, you know, I think it was fairly innocent, but it was more that, you know, just breaking the rules and doing those things really felt good. And, and it felt like you were almost like that secret society idea again, like you're connecting with people that are breaking the rules and that, that feeling felt comfortable to me. So uh, we kind of played around in that arena for a while and then, you know, just kind of went up the line, you know, started smoking weed and tried some acid and then found speed eventually. And speed was the one I ended up appreciating the most. So at your nadir with drug use, what did that look like? When you were in your worst place and most impacted by drug use, what did that look like? Well, that's the thing with drugs, uh, with me anyway, was that it was very deceptive because I wasn't a constant user, but I was a binger. So uh, I might not use for six months, but when I couldn't cope with whatever was going on and I tried doing this and I tried, so violence was my first choice for relieving myself. And so violence was my main addiction. But um, when that didn't work or I was at, uh, you know, I couldn't overcome it with aggression, uh, I would resort to drug use. And I would binge. And then after that binge, I would kind of get my bearings again. And then I would go back to the violence, you know. And so it was kind of like this this precarious balance in between those two things. But because I didn't use all the time and I didn't put myself out over it and I didn't go out and buy it, it was given to me. You know, like I would I didn't see myself as having uh, an issue with it. So let's get, you know, since obviously the drug use is kind of connected with the, the crime that put you in prison. Talk to us about, you know, what led up to that. So what led up to me having a drug binge there was that I'd had a series of failures with some women. So I wanted to get married. I was having problems. My dad had died a couple of years earlier. and That was a, a pretty big impact on me. And it shook me because he was one of the few people that I really felt a lot of love for in my life. Uh, I was always at odds with my mother, uh, who to the day she died, always had me on, you know, like, uh, you weren't good enough. It sounds like for her expectations. Well, it's just, she always had a way of making me feel small and not, you know, really wanting me to be a part of her life. And if I can just interject before you continue, uh, is that one of the things I'm hearing, and I asked you earlier about, you know, signs of 
you know, people who have the tendency for violence. One of the things you hear just even on the news, like I'm no, I'm not a psychologist, you know, but you hear all the time rejection by women, young men getting rejected over and over and over again by women. And it leads them to some of these violent outbursts. So it's just interesting that here it is again. Right. And, and it was definitely a, a trigger in my, in my commitment offense, my crime. But it started out with me trying to go up where uh, a girl that I w- had been dating for a while was at a Christian commune. And I went up there and I tried to woo her basically into being married and to do that. And she was very committed to her path with Christianity. And that was also a trigger for me because my mother was a you know pretty adamant Christian and it had damaged me with a lot of her judgmental perspectives through Christianity. And the hypocrisy of what she did through her religious actions really affected me growing up. So that was kind of a trigger in itself that I would get rejected behind that. So that was something that really like struck at home with me. So coming from that rejection of thinking that I had the potential to get married, and then I went down and had another relationship with a a girl down in Sacramento that was, it was just a, a poor mix. And it was pretty much a rebound type relationship where her old man was in jail. So she's kind of messing with me while he's there. And I, you know, it was just a ungratifying relationship. And he couldn't fill the hole of getting rejected from the marriage, you know. So then I went down to try to mess around with the town floozy, basically. And I hesitated in that exchange, which I normally never would have done. And then that got stopped, right? And so really, I hit rock bottom. And once again, I saw sexuality as acceptance. And you're feeling shame and rejection around it now. Right. So, So now the only thing that I find acceptance in, I'm not getting, you know, the only thing that really connects me to other people or I feel a connection to other people with. So even though it seems like a small thing, it was a very big deal to me. It was your context. It was the only way that I knew for sure that I, and I was, I always had received attention that way. So uh, to not get this was a very traumatic thing for me in the sense that like, it felt like everything was, you know, like I had lost all worth. So I went on a speed binge. I got some speed and started taking it and was really trying to avoid my father's death, trying to avoid these ideas or these feelings of inadequacy and worthlessness. And it really pushed me into this space to where I'm at with my mother and that she doesn't want me in the house. And, you know, we're, we're, we're stuck in this space, you know? And, uh, as I went into this downward spiral, uh, I started using an excessive amount of speed. And in that process, all of those old issues started to rise up in me. Because uh, when you use speed for long periods of time, you kind of get into this sleep deprived state. Mm-hmm. And I think your unconscious mind really just starts surfacing with everything that's mm-hmm. in there. And there was a, an ex-con that was out in the parking lot that was in a motorhome. And there was a bingo shop. I was working in a tree lot at the time. And he was basically just flossing the, the chicks that came out of there. They would have a bingo winning, you know, and they wanted to get with some dude. It was real, you know, low budget stuff. But that was his little hustle he was doing. And this kid came over in the middle of the night and I don't know what he was doing, but in my mind, he was molesting this kid because the kid came out of the crying one night. He was at least abusing the kid, you know? So I didn't know what was going on, but it triggered you. I went over there. I knocked on the door. I hear him tell him to hush. And then the kid, I see is visibly crying. And then I watch him leave. And I told myself, Oh, well, you know what? I can finally redeem myself. I can finally get somebody that fits the profile of the guy that molested me. Yeah. The guy I always wanted. You know, so in my mind, I was like, okay, the next time he comes back, I'm going to kill this guy. I'm going to kill him. I'm going to shoot him. I'm going to take him in his motorhome and drop him off somewhere. And I'm going to 
finally, and it isn't in this intellectual way that I'm giving it to you now, but this is what it felt like. I'm finally going to overcome that thing that has been haunting me my whole life. That thing that has made me feel small, that thing that has been haunting me. And he never came back, you know? And so I'm left with this feeling. I'm still feeling the same way I did going into this drug binge and, and this murderous spirit that's kind of entered to me or this idea of redemption that like, Hey, you know, I could have conquered this feeling, you know, that feeling felt like I could conquer it. I could redeem myself through this act of violence. And within a, a week span, we're in the driveway of one of my friend's houses and a guy walks up into the driveway and pulls a gun on us and it puts me out, you know, like, hey, for, for what reason? Well, because he didn't recognize our car, uh, but this was a friend of ours. We knew him and that happened to be the, the victim of my crime. And in that moment, I was, uh, we jumped out and, you know, confronted him and he wasn't aggressive. He dropped his firearm and left us alone. But in my mind, he had really crossed a major line. And more importantly, he had, he had challenged that idea in my head of this vigilante mindset that I had. When that happened, were you high? I was high at the yeah. time, yes. And that really wasn't enough to get me to go after him. But as we were leaving the driveway, my, the guy that I ended up committing my crime with, my co-defendant, he tells me that this guy's pulled a knife on him the week before because he had mismanaged some, some drugs that he wanted him to sell. And he was trying his best to pay him off by running drugs, you know, for him, but that the guy pulled a knife on him, you know? And I was like, Oh, okay. So this guy is terrorizing you. This person is a friend of yours and now he's terrorizing you. And this related directly back to the guy that had been my friend and then terrorized me. So now you're making a choice. Well, in my heart, he represents that thing I've been trying to conquer. Now. Yeah. He represents that idea that if I can take him out, I'll conquer this feeling that I've been chasing my whole life. So it's, it sounds like the choice to commit this crime was less about drugs or money and, and more, at least subconsciously, now that you have the insight that you have to conquer this demon. It was always about the, the attack for me. I didn't care about the drugs. I didn't care about the money. I didn't care about any of it. I just wanted to attack this guy. But for my co-defendant, it was more about the money and about that, you know, and he didn't want to attack. Like he was all about like, well, we can go in there and do this. And I was like, no, we got to down these guys, you know, like we got to put them down. So we, we went into it for very different reasons. Did it happen that night? It happened a couple of days later. So you planned it. Yeah. We, we fully premeditated this, this action. Uh, we went over there earlier that night to see who was in the house, to make sure no friends of ours were in there. Now, mind you, my co-defendant is very close friends with the guys, both of the guys that are in the house, Patrick and Gunner. And he was okay with the, the crime happening. Each one of us was going to go in and shoot one or the other and then take the stuff. And if I can uh, interject really quick, uh, and you can maybe outline it for the audience, this entire sequence of events can be seen on CNN's The Redemption Project with Van Jones. It's episode seven. And the name of the episode is? Uh, Left for Dead. Left for Dead, CNN, The Redemption Project with Van Jones. So, you know, you can see a whole detailed description of this um, talking to the listeners. Um, if, if you want to view that, it's, it's quite intriguing. So I'm sorry to interrupt. Go, go ahead. So at this point, we are invested in this crime for different reasons, but we both agree that this is what's going to happen, you know, and, uh, you know, and we, we carried it out, you know, uh, we, we go to the house, we knock on the door, Patrick answers the door, I attempt to kill Gunner, 
Uh, right off the bat, like no, there's no warning. There's no chance. You know, I, I just attacked him. Wow. And I hear a gunshot in the other room. Uh, I hear my co-defendant yelling. I, I don't really understand what's going on there. I go into the other room. I kill Patrick and I come back into the room with Gunner. Who's already been shot. He's already been shot once. Uh, he shoots at where, where he, where I was at in the room with the gun that he had on the dresser in self-defense. But in the process of doing that is gun jams. Uh, it, it jammed, it, the shell gets jammed in there. And so when I come back into the room, I hear the gun click at my chest. And then I shot him. Uh, I tried to shoot him several times in the head. I, I hit him once or twice. And, Where'd you hit him? Uh, right in his right in his jaw, in his face. Okay, so and obviously, we, he lived because he's on the show. But wow, that, so you, you was, he was close to not living. Uh, very, and he was knocked unconscious. We grabbed the, a safe, which had a bunch of guns in it. I grabbed his fanny pack, which had about $6,000 in it, and the gun that he had tried to shoot at me with. And uh, we left the house. Uh, he got up after that and then, uh, you know, called the cops. And how soon after that did you get caught? It was about a day afterwards. I think it was one full day and we basically turned ourselves in because we knew that the cops were watching our houses and we watched them raid our houses. And did you know that Gunner survived? I did because we drove by and we knew that somebody had survived. We didn't know who. And that, and that means they know, they knew, they knew you. So you were ID'd right. without yeah. question. And that's what we knew. And I was like, okay, well, you know, like we might as well just go face the music on this. And, you know, I just wanted to tell my mom what I had done. And I went home and I told her what I had done. And then the cops came into my house several minutes after that. Talk to me about that choice. Like this might be a good time to pivot into some of the themes of my show, which is clear choices. So that's a surprising choice to me that you would say, Hey, I'm going to fake. like, why not run? Why not flee? Why pivot and choose to face the music to use your words? <sighs> I think some part of me knew that I had done something horrific and I also knew that, that I couldn't run from it. I mean, there was some, you weren't going to win that battle. I mean, it just, for some, for some reason, I just knew that it, it wasn't going to pan out, you know, I, and we just decided to, to, my big thing was I wanted to be honest with my mom before I had to lie because I knew that I wasn't going to own up to it in the courts and that I was going to try to fight it. But I did tell her the truth. I told her what I had done. So I'm going to ask you a, maybe it's a confrontational question. I don't know, but uh, I think I know your answer, but I want to ask the question anyway. So you, you, you know, you've told us the history that led up to the moment that got you into prison. Does your history justify what you did? Or is it an explanation for what you did? How do you see it? Well, nothing justifies what I did. Uh, it is the truth of what contributed to how I adapted to it. So somebody always has to own how they adapt to something. And I think when we talk about resilience or we talk about the idea of where something this horrific can come from. We have to know that it doesn't come from uh, normal circumstances and that people only choose to adapt this way under these extreme circumstances. So it doesn't justify the actions and it does, it definitely doesn't mitigate any responsibility in it, but it definitely contributes to us preventing it from developing in that severity in the future and giving us an idea of how to heal it in people that have received that trauma mm -hmm. and are passing it on. So I want to go to the kind of next phase of my questioning somewhat in reverse, right? So you're how old now? I'm 44. You're 44. You committed this crime when you were 19. Correct. You've been out of prison five months. Right. 
you did the the redemption project the show on cnn how long ago uh, a couple of years ago I think. okay i want to work with the end in mind the end in mind is here you are a free man you know released from prison for a murder charge that would have been a life sentence or was expected to be a life sentence with no parole correct and now you're free. You're an articulate guy with a mission in life to do good and literally redeem yourself. So talk to us about the choices you made in prison from 19 until five months ago that got you here. Well, man, that's a long journey. And <laughs> I mean, it really is. And it, it really defies the odds because, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know how I found it. I mean, it, the, everything in there is designed to prevent you from finding it. Uh, everything, when you say in there, in prison, is it's not meant to really have you heal and progress is what you're saying. Definitely. Prison life is not designed in any way to, to facilitate real change or connect you to yourself or others or to connect you to the community or everything is about isolation. And the intention is what they call punitive segregation, which is harder time, longer sentences, you know, so. But so some, something had to exist within you that allowed you to cope with the environment you were in, be resilient enough to cope with that environment, and yet do something to give, give you the leniency that you received. Well, I think just age caught up with me, and I was very fortunate to land in a place that I really hadn't earned at that time. You know, when I first got in, I was the same guy that committed my crime. I was 19 years old going to prison. Uh, when I actually went to prison, it was on my 21st birthday after I, and I, I mean, the day of, you know, and I was just as committed to violence as ever because I had life without the possibility of parole. I was never going home. This was my home. Prison was my home. And the only way that you were at the top of the food chain there was to be extremely violent. And I went to Salinas Valley, which was one of the worst prisons and still is one of the worst prisons in California. And it was just opening up in 96. So everything that I believed in made sense in this world. And I applied myself as wholeheartedly to it as I could. And we went through the motions. And then I ended up getting transferred to Lancaster, where I spent 21 years of my life. I went there at 23 years old, and I left when I was 44 years old. And I spent more time at that prison than I was alive free. And in that journey... I went to the worst yard they had at the time, which was Sea Yard, and then they flipped it to a protective custody yard. And what does that mean? Uh, it means that, you know, they don't house us together. So if, if prisoners are, you know, not doing well on the main line, they go to a protective unit and they have whole yards that are kind of wrapped around that idea so that they're kind of segregated from the other communities. The more violent, uh, aggressive communities? Uh, yeah, well, the main line's the aggressive community. I see. And they're the ones that didn't fit into that community for whatever reason. And so they decided that that yard was going to be a protective custody yard. So they shipped, they were shipping us out. And at that time uh, they had just developed an honor program over on another yard. And I was a part of a Buddhist program over there on the yard that I was at. And I was starting to get the idea that I didn't want to be this violent guy anymore. I was giving up the violence. I was trying to find a new way. I didn't quite know how to, be at peace with myself yet, but I was meditating every day and I was not investing in, you know, overt violence all the time. And so the lady that ran the Buddhist Sangha was like, Hey, if you want to come over to this honor program, I can get you over here. And then you don't have to transfer out of the prison. And I was like, Hey man, that, that sounds good. I'm comfortable at this prison. You know, like, why don't we go ahead and do that? You know? And this program ends up being an amazing program. And what it really is, is a life without a program. 
A life with what? Life without, you know, because what ends up happening is, is that there's, there's less buildings on this yard. So normally one yard has a thousand people. Every building has 200 people. Mm -hmm. And so two of these buildings were at SEG. So there was only 600 beds available. And of those 600 beds, three to 400 of the guys for life without the possibility of parole. So we ran the yard Mm -hmm. and it never changed. Because life without her just stayed there. They didn't go down to lower levels. They didn't get transferred out to other prisons. We so it became at least very familiar. It was a very comfortable place. And for people that don't know this, uh, life without hers are the most stable population in the prison system because they're never going home. They invest in their environment as their as their home, and the majority of them don't ever commit violence in prison. Interesting. So, uh, though they've been given the harshest sentence. They, There's some sort of acceptance in that, I'm guessing. Well, they're just the most stable. You know, they're the most stable. So our yard ends up becoming, you know, the, the light of CDC, you know, in the sense that they're, we are rehabilitative. We, we create our own programs. We're actually investing in self-help. We're, we're trying to live in our own skin. We're trying to come to terms with, you know, uh, our incarceration, how we can give back in some way, some purpose in life. Uh, trying to be the best person you can be in the limited context that is allowable and, and available to you in prison. Right. And and that isn't the norm in prison. Most people are just trying to survive. You're just trying to survive. And people, they get caught up in that rat race. And most of the time you sit in a prison, you don't stay in a prison for longer than five years. I mean, most people get rotated out of any prison within five years. They'll be there for two or three years. They go to Adseg a few times and they get shipped out to another prison. So they're in a constant state of turmoil. There's no stability in the prison population. So as we were there, we were there for a long period of time, and we were also developing things. So we might have a program where we take a book, and then you go, okay, we're going to make a class out of this book. And you know what? That was so good. We're going to actually ask the person that wrote the book to come in and talk to us. And then from that, you know, expand the program. So when you have a program that's been existing for a decade, it evolves into a program that you would never see at a regular prison because we're invested in its success and we're putting ourselves into it. And you, um, and you started a program there called Healing Through Art? Right. We started an art program. So when they took arts and corrections out of prison, at one point they saw art as a rehabilitative tool. And then in 2009, they decided, hey, you know what? We're going to take that out of all of you know, CDCR. That's no longer going to be a part of our rehabilitative efforts. So they took all of that funding out of there. Well, at that time, there was an art room, there was there was funding for it from the state, and there was a lot of skilled artists that were donating their paintings to battered women's shelter. We're doing Toys for Tots every year. You know, we were giving back to the community, and it felt it was something we were invested in. It's something we really cared Did about. You, were you, how conscious were you of how you were changing as a person? Honestly, not not as much as you would think, you know, uh, uh, up to into my thirties, I think it was just more like you were, you were adapting to your environment. You were trying new things. You were trying to find, you know, peace with yourself, you know, but it was just more of a day to day type thing. You know, you're just, you know, in prison, you kind of think of it in a daily manner. You don't really ever get too far outside of that because every day is a different day in there and the tide changes very quickly, you know? Mm-hmm. So, you never really feel that connected to your persona or who you are outside of like, Hey, am I safe? And am I doing something that I really like to do? You know? So you kind of get into that kind of survival mentality and 
in the beginning, it just, it wasn't that way. But the longer that we didn't have violence in our yard and the longer that we didn't have excessive gang activity going on, the longer that we didn't have a rampant drug use going on, you know, people still use drugs periodically, but it wasn't a whole drug culture on the yard. And you had this huge effort towards rehabilitation on our end as a choice, not because we were never going to the board. So it didn't have anything to do with it. It was just about improving. It was about living in your own skin. Yeah. It was about waking up, being content. It was about giving back in some way and, and finding some sensible being. Did you get to that point? Like, did you, did you feel like you were comfortable in your skin and had you not been released like you have been, that you were like, I, I can live with myself. This is the rest of my life. I can, I'm okay. You know, uh, yes and no. I think that in those conditions, the worst thing you can do is heal because now this world doesn't make sense to you. You're stuck around a bunch of adolescent-minded people that believe in violence and are deeply committed to a culture that you've invested in as a kid. But when you grow up, it's, it's egregious. And more importantly, now you don't fit in. You can't believe in the things that are going on in prison anymore. So now you're an outcast in an outcast community. So it's, it's a very difficult thing to, to have a sense of peace and centeredness and well-being and at the same time to isolate yourself from every other human being that isn't of that mindset inside of prison. So talk to us now. Like, so you're, you're, you're invested in self-improvement. You're involved in some projects that are making a difference not only for yourself but your fellow inmates. What do you think led to your release? You know, to me, I... I still don't know, to be honest with you. To me, it was a tremendous act of mercy. It was something that for the type of crime that I committed and by the letter of the law, I mean, I, I would have fit the death penalty. And when I applied for my commutation, I admitted for the first time in my life that it was a real first degree murder. It wasn't a circumstantial thing. I didn't claim any mitigating circumstances. And I just asked for mercy. And I was given mercy. So now and given your honest, um, authentic, I mean, I'm sitting here with you, like you're completely authentic when you say that. What are you going to do with that gift? Well, before I even received the commutation, you know, um, I had a life of what we call amends. It's a living amends. You you take ownership for the, the actions that you've committed, the consequences that's had on your life, other people's lives, the community, and that ripple effect that the negativity we embraced caused other people. And we seek to change that cycle. You know, we, we look at within that cycle and say that we don't want that trauma cycle to exist in other people's lives, in our community, in the people that we've harmed. So for me, that opportunity or that mercy that was given to me is an extension of the work that we were doing inside and that intention to come out here and to help other people that are either going to be in my shoes or the people that are going to be on the other side of that offense and be traumatized by somebody that was deeply damaged like myself. And so that living amends and that mercy that has been given to me is an opportunity to give back in ways that normally don't exist in our community. And do you see yourself, is this, is this your, the rest of your life you see devoted to this type of work? Oh, absolutely. I, I was already devoted in a lifelong way while I was incarcerated. And I think that 
anybody that really has that epiphany inside of themselves, you know, when they finally connect to themselves in a way when they address their trauma and they feel what they have chosen not to feel in their life, when they finally feel that damage that's inside of themselves and they confront their shame and they own up to what it is they've been avoiding in their lives, they then immediately connect to everyone else. And in that way, you connect to all of the harm that you've committed. You connect to every aspect of what it is that you haven't had the ability to feel before that. Because if I can't feel my pain, I can't relate to yours. And so, I mean, I'm assuming not only because you're working in this space that you just described, it's got to be hard to not be thinking every day, have a thought every day of what you did. Is that true? Yeah, I there there isn't a day that goes by that, that the work that I'm doing doesn't make me aware of the impact that I've had on the community. But it's it's on the other side of it. It's in knowing that I'm creating support systems for people that would never have that type of support system outside of that deep and intimate knowing of what it is to have been in that space. So would you say that Gunner, who was one of the survivors of the crime, has he forgiven you? I would say that he he has done that. And and just to be clear, like all of the work that I did towards amends and still do isn't from a perspective of forgiveness. And I know that word comes up a lot. Mm-hmm. And to me, that term implies that that all debt is lifted. When you forgive somebody, if I forgive you, well, you know, you're squared up. You're even. And that's never going to be the case. And from my perspective, even if you forgive yourself, even if you and it that that term forgiveness to me is really understanding. A deep understanding of what is going on takes away the trauma of it, but it doesn't take away the responsibilities. So it's more about the removal of the trauma than forgiveness for well, you. Well, to me, forgiveness is understanding. It's this, it's synonymous. Mm-hmm. And that understanding gives, now that Gunnar understands where it came from and he understands where it came from in my life and why I did what I did and how he doesn't bear that responsibility, that understanding gives him peace. And you as well. And it gives me peace that he has it now, but it doesn't take away my responsibility in that because I have taken so much and had such a deep and lasting lifelong impact upon other people that did not deserve that trauma, I have an obligation to spend the rest of my life because it's a lifelong debt. It's a lifelong occurrence. I've taken something that can't be replaced. So in that, in an effigy of that, you live every day saying, you know what, how can I stem the tide of that? Mm-hmm. How can I change the direction of this for other people? And how can I remove this from other people's lives in ways that benefits our community? Powerful. So Christian, I understand that when you got released from prison, uh, one of the first things you did was you made the choice to have a vasectomy. Is that right? Right. And I, and I get that, you know, we, we talked about it a bit uh, in the pre-interview and you had said that, you know, as, as noble as it is to have children, you really wanted to dedicate your life to the causes that you're now involved in. And for, you know, the efforts that really got you early release, um, you felt like having children would be sort of an unfair hindrance to, to those efforts. Is that right? Right. Well, you know, I, I, I admire that. Uh, I admire the, the, the sacrifices you've elected to make in order to 
you know, continue your path to redemption. So very powerful. So uh, how would you describe your state of mind or being right now? Are you at peace? Are you in turmoil? Are you always in process? Like, how would you, how would you describe it? Don't let me put words in your mouth. Well, every, every day that I'm out here and doing this work, I mean, really it's, it's a dream come true to me. It's a miracle. I mean, I was life without's a real thing. I mean, you hear about life sentences and a lot of people that don't know the judicial system, they hear, Oh, well guys are going up to the board with life sentences. Well, life without means life without. You never go to the board. You never have an opportunity. There's never, it's never there. If you're over the age 18, when you committed your crime. So without a commutation by the governor and somebody in a grand place of authority saying, you know what, we're going to give you a second chance, which is extremely rare. This does not happen often, which means you don't have a hope for it. You know, you don't ever expect it to happen. You know, it doesn't happen. It's not going to be a part of your reality. It's not something that you're really going to think about or bring in the context of what's going on. So as I sit out here today, I live underneath that feeling of that I'm extremely blessed and that that opportunity shouldn't go to waste, that I'm a voice for people inside that aren't heard, uh, that do change and do have a lot to give to their communities and do have a conscience. You know, our, our communities are deprived because that voice isn't in it. How do you feel being out in terms of, I don't, I don't mean, I mean, of course, I'm sure having your first place and having a, a significant other and all these things are amazing first, you know, for a 40 something guy. But I guess what I'm asking is, do you feel well received or are you aware of people going, Hey, this guy just got out of a long sentence in prison? You know, it's, it's really surprising because I haven't been, I haven't received the type of scrutiny I would have expected. I have been well received. I have been given opportunities that I couldn't have begged for. I mean, like I, I feel extremely privileged to, to have been received by the community in a way that is not only helpful to me, but providing me opportunities to give back, you know, to be able to speak publicly to inner circles where uh, I wouldn't be allowed into them unless I was invited. Tell me the organization you're involved with now. Uh, I work with Healing Dialogue in Action, who works with the survivors of violent crime, but it's a restorative justice-based organization, meaning that they consider both sides equal, the offender and the survivor of a violent crime, and seek the well-being of both people inside of that effort. So as they try to heal the survivor of the crime, they equally try to heal the offender, knowing that we are never disconnected from our communities and that that restorative effort is complete when both sides are healed. Super powerful. You know, it sounds like some, some involvement in, in government or at least policy is something that might be in your future. Well, I, I think that the work that I do is I'm, I'm trying to change the narrative of the way that we approach trauma in our community, trying to change the way that we, you know, a lot of our public sentiment traps people in their trauma. You know, when we tell somebody, well, if you don't hate the person that harmed you, then you didn't love the person you lost. When we do that, we trap that person and that we shame that person for wanting to heal. Mm-hmm. When our public sentiment should be, you know what, you've had a tragedy happen in your life and we can only hope that you find peace and well-being at some point and as near as possible in your future. 
and us as a community, it's our responsibility to help you get there. You know, so often in uh, talking points in the media, you know, you hear about how to have better control of guns and how to deal with mental health. Those, those two things are always connected. Do you have any notion on what we can do as a society to make those things better? I think it's obviously a very complex subject and there probably isn't one sticking point in that. And I do think mental illness is a, you know, something that we need to focus on because our prisons are full of people that are mentally ill. But outside of that, as far as a preventative measure is to really understand what shame is and how it affects us and how it leads to extreme violence. And knowing that our perspectives that shame other people lock people into their trauma. And we as a nation, as a community, are responsible for that sentiment. Mm -hmm. And when we say these people are irrevocable and that these people are unacceptable and that these people should not exist or we, we have these sentiments that put somebody beneath us, There are people all around you that have these experiences and these sentiments that are feeling disconnected because of those actions. And the more isolated they become, the more violent it will be in our community. I've been so uh, entranced with our conversation as I knew I would be that I haven't gotten to my quotes or my data points that I always bring into a show. So I'm going to read you a couple of quotes. I just want you to react. Let us know how it lands on you. First one. Redemption is something you have to fight for in a very personal, down, dirty way. Some of our characters lose that, some stray from that, and some regain it. To me, redemption is facing the thing that you would not face and what harmed other people. It's about facing your greatest fear. If I took a life because I couldn't confront my shame, the only thing that is a form of redemption to me is to face that shame and then to share that process with other people so that they have company in facing that same struggle. I'm going to, I'm going to go to a couple of these stats and just, you know, we can just talk about it. I don't need to read all this, but the, the simple thing is within three years of release, most convicted felons are imprisoned 68% of the time within six years of release, 79% of the time. And within nine years of release, 83% 83% of the time, they're back. Why, why do you think that is? What, what can we do different? Well, I think with those particular stats, those are not stats of lifers. And when you see lifer stats, you're going to see that, especially with life without the possibility of parole, the people that have been given a second chance there, that zero recidivism for violence and a 1% to 2% margin for nonviolent crimes. So, On that end of the spectrum, you see people that had life sentences that don't recidivate at all, and I mean zero, for violent crimes. And then you'll see where you have those stats come from people that have three strikes, drug offenses, things that have to do with addiction or spousal abuse or, you know, sexual offenses or, you know, like this this is a whole other genre of incarceration where those stats come from. So Christian, what, what do you see as your life legacy looking forward? I mean, if it could, if it could turn out the way that I hope and the way that what I struggle for, uh, we would change the narrative of healing. We would give real opportunities for people to heal from things that they are currently trapped in in our communities. And 
that's a wide range from survivors of violent crime to the people that perpetuate those crimes who are also survivors of their violent crimes. And changing this cycle from something that we see ourselves outside of and looking at it as our problem versus mine or your problem and bringing light to it in a way that really helps people get to the core of what is actually happening and not look at the symptoms, but look at the real issues, the core issues of what's happening in us, in our communities, and how this trauma cycle is the same thing. You always hear it in different contexts. You hear it in the context of they're in an addiction cycle. They're in a shame cycle. They're in a trauma cycle. These are all the same thing. And if we want that cycle to end or to be diminished or to at least change, you know, in any way, we have to be willing to confront the core issues of shame and become more tolerant and accepting of other people's experiences. You know, it's, um, it's very powerful what you're saying. And I think it's for me sitting with you here for the first time, it's, it's all the more powerful because of your past, right? Cause it's, cause you know, you're, you're, I'm sitting here with a really articulate, soulful, thoughtful person and that doesn't line up with society's view and probably my own judgment too of like convicted of murder, you know, uneducated, blah, 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 blah. And so, so the, what you're saying is all the more poignant, at least to me, because it doesn't necessarily line up with the stereotype I think many people would have of you. And so it's, it's, you know, I think you're in a unique position to, to fulfill that legacy that you want to fulfill because your, your message is, um, coming from a true place of authenticity and not knowing you when you were 19, but I can see that much change has taken place in you and and more will come, I'm sure. So in closing, what have I not asked you that would be an important thing to leave our audience, particularly as it relates to choices and and the good and or bad ones that you've made? I I think the, the crux of it is that We have to know that everything is always in a state of flux. Every person, every situation, every experience that we have is in a state of flux in our perception and our awareness of it. And that a lot of the times we try to limit our scope of understanding by labeling things or saying that this is what this is and this is what that is. And that that is where our biggest failure is at, is trying to say when it's time for somebody to change or when is it acceptable to receive the truth from someone and how is it that we ever perceive ourselves disconnected from somebody else's experience you know uh so for me that's the only thing that i would add to this narrative is that we never know when somebody's going to change and we never know when they're when they're going to be able to contribute and that that voice and that change is what we're missing in our communities and that If somebody goes down the road that I've gone down and committed horrible crimes and healed from things that should have drove me insane or made me drug addicted to the point that I committed suicide through drug use or put myself in murderous situations where I was myself was killed. If I survived that, if I made it through that mental anguish and destruction and came into a place of well-being and centeredness and well intention making an impact on the world if i come to that place then it contradicts the the idea that somebody 
has nothing to offer. That because of an action that I committed when I was 19 and it is irrevocably there, Mm -hmm. that we don't have something to give. That there's a lot of people that are incarcerated that are in our communities now that are shut out because of those sentiments and judgment. And that our that our communities benefit when people that have healed can heal other people. You know, and there's that saying that say hurt people hurt people and heal people heal people. Well, that's a great a great place to end, Christian. I'm I'm privileged that you agree to be here today. I want to remind the audience that you can learn more about Christian by going to the CNN show, The Redemption Project. It's episode seven. Uh, with Van Jones and uh, can be found on YouTube, which is where I found it. Uh, Any other websites or any other places you want to send listeners so they can learn a little bit more about what you're doing? Uh, I would go to healingdialogueinaction.org. They are very active in the community and dealing with survivors of violent crime. If you have issues like this that you wish to deal with, or you know someone that is trying, that is an offender or a survivor of a crime that these dialogues or these intentions of bringing both sides together truly bring you to a place of well-being and peace. And it's our intention to, to have that effect in our communities. And I hope that you find peace if you don't have it now. Christian, thanks for being here today. That was another episode of Clear Choices. Thank you so much for listening. Like, share, and post. This is a powerful uh, episode. Thank you so much for joining us. If you've been inspired and motivated by what you heard today, please subscribe to the show so you don't miss an episode. Post it on social media, invite friends, and let me know if you have any potential guests. While you're there, leave us a review. We'd love to connect with you as well, so check out our Facebook page by searching Clear Choices. I'm available for speaking engagements, and you can find more information by visiting our website at clearchoices.live. And all this can be found in our show notes. Join us next week for more inspiring stories that can help us all make clear choices. Thanks for listening.